The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hi, Krishna, everyone. You are listening to the Late Morning Program with Nam Ras the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world. I'm here with my friend Ravi Chambers. Ravi, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, it's great to join you. And it's actually seeing that intro and seeing all those devotees, like many of whom I know, it's awesome. It's it's uh, great to be part of it. Thank you. Yeah, this is, it's been a long time coming. I have been meaning to have you on. Last week didn't happen because we had New York Rathiatra. New York Rathiatra was fantastic. Yeah. It was like we, we, we started, uh, you know, at that, the beginning point and and uh there wasn't that many people there and we're like oh there's not that many people this year okay as soon as we got on fifth avenue it was mm-hmm. like like something exploded like devotees yeah. came out of nowhere and they <laughs> and it just like filled up all the whole fifth avenue it was fantastic yeah i saw the photos it looked amazing it's it's it reminded me a bit of london rathiatra which i think is also going ahead this year and like yeah i know what you mean like you're you're on your way to the rathiatra and you just see devotees emerging from all these side streets and kind of converging it's quite nice yeah. Yeah. So, so Robbie, let's, let's talk a little bit about your um, spiritual journey. I know it's really interesting. You have, a, you had a documentary that came out recently called Road to Vrindavan. We can talk about that later on, but uh, let's talk a little bit about how you got in contact with Krishna consciousness. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, I grew talk, up in Dublin. Talk to us a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up and stuff as well. Yeah. A bit of context. Yeah. So yeah. I grew up in Dublin in Ireland and, um, my parents, uh, particularly my dad, were were not um, typically Irish. Like my dad is a real individualist. So, um, growing up at, at uh, well, I was born in 1972. So in 1973, my dad became macrobiotic, which oh, wow. is kind of, I guess, you could is the same as veganism now. But if you think yeah. about 1973, that was pretty radical. Unheard of. Um, no sugar, no meat, no dairy. Um, brown rice lent like low you know really healthy eating um so he kind of just got really into it i suppose that was his you know becoming a devotee in his own way i suppose at the time right. and so from that age of nearly one years old till my teens i was completely vegetarian in the, my teens i sort of was was went off yeah. a, a little bit but not mega never really got mega into meeting and then when i became a devotee again i obviously it was kind it was sort of not so strange then to become a vegetarian again. Yeah. But um, yeah, my dad was a hairdresser. So he was, uh, for older listeners, like Vidal Sassoon in, in London would have been like the, the sort of very famous type hairdresser. He was the equivalent in Ireland. And wow. so there was always this sense of growing up, which I think has its pros and cons. You know, he was he was very, very well known in Dublin. And he was really into that in the sense that he he grew up on a farm simple family but he 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 kind of made a name for himself became an entrepreneur did all of that so he, he yeah there was that sense of fashion and quite materialistic i suppose in many mm. ways the body image like all of that we had mirrors all over our house which um which kind of like did my head in um i'll tell you why in a minute um, so growing up i was kind of on one hand it was the 80s as well by the time I became a teenager. So like I've heard other people on podcasts from that era kind of talk about it. You know, there was Wall Street, the film was out and there's a famous line in that, which is greed is good. And it was all about material success was 
like maybe to become very wealthy, have a, a red sports car. You know, it was a very now um, stereotypical idea of what success was, but that was material success kind of looked like that, if you like. So as a teenager, I kind of wanted to be a stockbroker. I don't know if I really, that was what I wanted, but I had an interest in money and I guess my idea of what was presented to me as success. Um, yet I, at the same time, had a deep yearning to, I was thoughtful, I was sensitive, I wanted to understand, you know, what on earth we were, you know, what on earth life was about. So I remember very clearly being about nine years old and standing next to my mother while she was putting away the laundry and and having a series of kind of existential questions that I was trying to articulate to her, you know, something along the lines of, you know, you know, I exist, so I'm trying to make sense of all of this. If I didn't exist, would it still be here? And then what would be the relevance of it if I wasn't here to perceive it? So it was that kind of wow. um, egocentric trying to grapple with what does my existence mean, I guess. Um, and throughout my teens, that question never went away. It was a really burning question. So it was kind of like, in a way, a life of two contradictions. I was very readily and happily chasing all of the outward external things but at the same time kind of knew that deep down really I was looking for something for meaning as well so and throughout my life actually both those two things sort of took the hot seat at different times um, and I feel like now more recently I uh, in the last um, maybe 15 years I've reconciled them and they're both just parts of who I am if you like they're not, they're not at opposition with each other I guess mm. um and so, yeah, growing up, um, I went to a school where it was a comprehensive. Um, so we had people, the, the son, uh, well, it happened, actually it was the daughter of the head of the stock exchange was there, but there was also people who were in care and, you know, were sometimes homeless. And so you had an incredible range of people, you know, in this social spectrum, um, which I think was really good for me because I felt like I, then I learned to make friends with all different kinds of people. Sometimes, sometimes in retrospect, I've looked back and I've thought, wow, I had no idea that in the sense of social uh, uh, ladder climbing and all it, a lot of people choose a particular type of school because you get a certain type of friends who then grow on to have a certain type of influence and that network gets you success, et cetera. I, had, I was oblivious to that, which I'm glad I was. And sometimes at points in my life, I have looked back and thought, well, Maybe maybe I should have gone to this type of school or that type of school, but I really feel grateful that I had that broad um, exposure to different types of people. Right. Um, so anyhow, when I was in, um, I guess what's the equivalent of GCSA E age in the UK? I don't know what it is in America, but like high sort of school. fifteen. Yeah, sort of. The, in high school, the the middle set of exams, not the final exams. So when you're halfway through, right. um, I. Um, a friend of mine, he Stephen Byrne, his name is, he he said to me, hey, I'm going around to all these different world religions. And for some reason, the only one he asked me to go to was the Hare Krishna Temple. So that was at that time in a place called Crow Street in Dublin, which oh, is, wow. yeah, so it's Temple Bar. It's a kind of a... Wait, so he was doing a project or something? No, he just had taken it upon himself to go and check out different okay. world religions. And he... And, um, he was from a Christian background. That's the other thing. My father and mother, they'd both, I guess, been brought up in what would be a Protestant um, right. uh, background, but neither of them uh, practiced it particularly. But I think I think there's an honesty. Like they basically 
didn't felt like they didn't know for sure. They were agnostic. Mm. And so therefore they chose not to bring us up in a particular way and just felt like we could, when we were old enough, we could figure it out for ourselves kind of thing. Um, so we didn't do a lot of the things that other people would have done, like um, Catholics, they do confirmation. There's certain things as they're growing up that they do, um, kind of, I guess, out of cultural, social conformity or whatever. Most of them, it doesn't necessarily mean that much, but they kind of go through the motions. So we didn't, we didn't do any of that. But that meant that I was an atheist, really. Um, not because um, I just... I guess in the absence of a particular thing, I was probably more of an agnostic, but I was thought thought of myself as an atheist. And um, anyhow, he invited me to the temple. So obviously Sunday feast all around the world, we have you know the Sunday feast where people can go. Yeah. And I headed into town uh, on the bus. So this is funny too, you know, in those days, so this was, what's it mean about 1987 or 1988. Um, Obviously, it's way before mobile phones, way before the internet. So if you're going into town, as we say, you know, you you get the bus, you're on your way in. If your friend is early or late or you're early or late, sometimes you won't and you miss each other. Sometimes you're not going to know until two or three days later what happened. <laughs> Whereas now it's like instant WhatsApping. Where are you? Where are you? Yeah. So anyhow, um, I was on my way in. And I was walking to the central bank where we were going to meet. And I was kind of like, you know, the, the aspiring stockbroker guy, you know, kind of like a yuppie suit jacket, tie. I don't know. That was just. How old were you? I was like 15, 15, I'd say. Okay. And um, these uh, group of punks, you know, punk rockers with the proper spiky hair and everything. Um, somehow or other, one of them thought that, like, was a friend of someone else I knew, thought that I'd said something about them or whatever. Anyway, they saw me and they started chasing me. And they cornered me. <laughs> the guy punched me in the face, got a, a milkshake, a strawberry milkshake, and poured it over my head. Um, so it was a miserable situation. Anyway, they kind of then let me go, and I went to meet my friend. Um, and we went to the temple for the Sunday feast. Now I was a bit distracted. <laughs> Obviously, I was, I was just, you know, a bit disheveled. But I remember vaguely the kirtan. But the main thing, I just remember the cartels, you know, that sort of sound. Yeah, didn't make a massive impact on me. The class just went over my head. I was probably thinking about my situation, but the prashadam was was delicious and amazing. And um, we went up to one lady at the end, and we said, um, you know, we really liked the prashadam. You know, could you give us the recipe? And she, you know, in classic fashion, said, oh, you should come back next week, and we'll show you. And in our minds, we thought, nah, no, nah, that's like if you're going to give us the recipe, just give us the recipe. <laughs> um, yeah. So we didn't go back, but. Um, but funnily enough, uh, then I, as my later teens, I got really into, into philosophy and I started to go to a thing called Gnosis, which was Gnostic anthropology, which was essentially an impersonal kind of sort of esoteric, I guess, broadly um, sort, of, sort of stoic Christian kind of mixture of things. And there was this Spanish, uh, few Spanish couples that were in Dublin and they used to do these classes. And I guess nowadays you still see it, but they sometimes call it things like practical philosophy or practical psychology. You know, it's um, and so, but they talked about karma, reincarnation, these kind of things. They talked about the idea of the ego and the essence. I guess how we would say, like the soul and you know your material understanding of yourself. Um, so there was some concepts that I was you know really interested in. Um, but the ultimate conception of it, although I didn't understand it at the time, is only when I came in touch with devotees. 
was that it was a more impersonal understanding. Um, so I was really into that. And then I went to university, did a degree in psychology. So there was another thing in my schooling that was quite unusual. In my school, they had a thing called a transition year, which basically meant if you wanted to just go from academic straight through to the final academic exams, you could, but you could also take do this optional year called a transition year, which was essentially a personal development year, really. Oh, you like do a deferred... Um, it was like in school. Yeah, it was in school, but it oh, was, it was like... School, huh? mm, so it's part of the school. It was kind of... I guess a bit revolutionary, it was unusual, but it was like uh, retreats and, you know, even yoga and um, poetry and self-expression and art, all of that kind of thing. And I think in that, during that year, I had a kind of um, a, a, a shift of gear, if you like, away from wanting to do the stockbroker stuff. Like I'd done work experience in the stockbrokers and on paper during lunchtime, like, you know, they would give me exercises and I'd technically on paper, you know, made 30 grand over lunch, you know, based on the things I was saying. And I said, I will get, definitely give you a job if you want it after wow. school. And, um, you know, that was appealing in a way up to a point. But like I felt during this year, I just felt like there was something much more deeper that I wanted to follow. Um, although I didn't know exactly what it was really, but I just knew there was something more, there were bigger questions or tasks at hand, if you like. Um, so I, I, I took a different interest. And when I went to university, I did psychology because I guess in a way I felt like maybe that would help me to understand things better. Right. Um, I got quite disappointed in that because I wanted to do my research project on happiness. And at that time, there was a big um, dilemma, I guess, in the field of psychology where they wanted to be accepted as a, hard, a harder science, like something that would be taken a bit more seriously. So they were there was a sort of a sense of if you can't measure it empirically, then you can't really study it. And I thought this was right. ridiculous because I thought, well, happiness, it's obviously a thing like we all experience it. So, right. but I was told, well, you can't do it because how can you measure it? And I, I, I was very disappointed by that. I thought that was, so it did it, it sort of, you know, it wasn't obviously the place that I was going to find my deeper answers. So, um, but anyway, funnily enough, I finished my, my degree and um, after my degree, I went to San Francisco for four months to work for the summer. And I um, I went with this same friend, Stephen Byrne, that I'd been to the temple with years before. Anyhow, you know, we started both working for this guy called, you know, stereotypically an Irish guy called Paddy, um, who was a, a roofer. So proper kind of working guy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I spent three or four months working on the roofs of San Francisco, just doing hard labor work, just ripping off roofs. And it was... It was interesting, but Paddy was an alcoholic, and every night after work, he would, we would be covered in black. So my hair was kind of still long, so it was all sticking up, and I was black and everything. And he would take us to the pub. We didn't particularly want to go to the pub, but you know, we had to go. And he would buy us beers and stuff. So it, it turned out that we were working hard and just drinking a lot, even though I don't know if we would have anyway. Probably not. Mm. But that was just the kind of situation. So. Somehow or other things with the flat, I was staying with him and there was two 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 girls that we knew from our, uh, Ireland as well that were friends of friends, whatever. So we were all sharing this apartment. It all kind of fell apart and we all went our separate ways. And I remember feeling very, um, it was a moment where I, I don't know, I, I, probably I felt a bit depressed. I was wandering around in San Francisco uh, feeling very dejected and I don't know, gravitating towards people who 
I didn't have anything in common with materially, but in terms of the emotion I was feeling, I think I felt something in common with. So like homeless people, um, the down and outs, the sort of misfits, if you like. So I remember hanging out, not properly hanging out, but, you know, sort of gravitating towards those kind of people. I felt comfortable somehow because I just felt sort of somehow I'd fallen out of um, the the situation that I'd been in. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, I've, I've, I got a flyer for uh, the Rathiatra, Festival of Chariots, they called it in, in San Francisco. And I thought, I'll go to that. Um, and funny enough, my friend Stephen Byrne, the same guy, also got one, but we didn't know. We weren't in touch at this stage. So anyway, we both went just to um, Golden Gate Park and uh, we met again. And we were like, oh, you know, that was nice. And so we were at the... The you know the the after party I guess you know they they pull the the rath to the location and then they have the the festival yeah and they have the stalls and they have a stage program and everything so we're both there in this field and um, we're sort of probably about twenty or thirty meters back you know they had dramas and music and kirtan and different things and they had a murti of Prabhupada on the stage and some devotee was fanning him and there's other devotees on the mic and says um. You know, today's a special day. Uh, Krishna's in a party mood today. It's a special festival. Krishna's 5,000 years old. And, you know, he's in really in a party mood. And we were, like, kind of confused. We were thinking, so is that is that guy on the stage, is that Krishna? I mean, he couldn't be 5,000 years old, could he? I mean, it's not possible. Because uh, we first thought it, it was a real, a real like, a living person. Right. And we were getting closer, and we were going, he's, they're saying he's in a party mood. I mean, he's not even moving. <laughs> And uh, we were we were a bit stoned as well, and we were sort of like getting a bit closer and closer, just trying to figure it all out. And then we got to a certain point where we realized like it was a murti, and we just we started rolling around laughing, you know. Um, but it was a nice scene, you know. In LA, it was obviously been a scene for a long time. So you had older devotees, you had young, what I guess were probably gurukuli type kids, you know, sitting around playing guitars and doing kirtan and stuff. It was it was a really nice mood. But anyway, we went to the book table, and. Um, because I felt like I understood a, a bit about philosophy, you know, I was trying to engage in some conversation with the people at the book table. And um, their thing was, you know, one lifetime, you know, you've got to just do this and you'll get out one lifetime. And I remember having some kind of a disagreement when I was saying, well, you know, you can make progress, you know, over many lifetimes and whatever. So there's a sort of a, a shared understanding, but I we didn't see fully eye to eye. Anyway, I came back to Ireland and um, I met a friend of mine, um, who, who sadly passed away now, Medivy Nittai. At the time, his name was back, was Mick, Mick Duff. And he had a band and, you know, we used to go and see them play in different places around Dublin. And he said to me, oh, you know, I go to the temple on Sundays and um, would you like to come? And I, I said, yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. So I went with him and that's when I met Trebuvanath. And uh, it was in Dame Street in Dublin. Uh, it was a shop, like a storefront type setup. It was right on a very main street, and there was a long road that came down perpendicular to that street. So this is where traffic would pile up, tons of traffic coming down. And right here, opposite the traffic, as I looked down, said Hare Krishna Cultural Center in these big gold letters. It was, and there used to have a diorama in the window, you know, with either changing bodies or also the one with the man with the axe and the bull's head and, you know, that karma right. one. Right. Uh, so people would often stop, like so much people walking past and looking in. And 
we had a, a shop in the front, you know, selling like incense and little elephants and clothes and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then there was a the temple room. Um, and beyond that was the Yoni Sharon toilet and the kitchen. And then downstairs was where the, the monks lived, like the ashram. And um, so I, the thing is, um, I went in and Trubhuvanath instantly was very um, um, attractive as a personality. Um, he was a kind of a sort of roguish Irish kind of Indiana Jones type character, you know, very dynamic. Um, and when he would do Kirtan, anyone who knows, you know, he was all in, like 110%. He's for, for those of for, for our listeners mm -hmm. who don't know who Tribhuvanath Prabhu is, he's a he's quite a um like a famous personality. He's passed on now, but he was mm -hmm. a, quite a famous personality in England, like kind of like a mm -hmm. Vishnu John Swami type character. I mean, exactly. devotee from like the same as from America. Um, for 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 those of you who know Vishnu John Swami, so Tribhuvanath yeah. Prabhu was a similar personality, like very um very empowered and in preaching and kirtan and things like that um yeah. so to, you you met him first yeah so before, before that i want to ask you mm -hmm. you know you're you're kind of interacting with Hare krishnas a few times now mm. do you feel like why did these people still keep coming up like this is like the like third time now that i've interacted with him maybe not particularly. I didn't think didn't at this stage. No, I just thought because right. I was always um, like maybe, like I said, because of my upbringing, I, we were like super. We didn't have a narrow path outlook to the world or life. So to me, they were just another one thing of many multitudes of things. Sure. If you like, it wasn't like this is something really out of the ordinary, particularly. I mean, it was a little right. bit exotic, but um. You were saying how he was like an Indiana Jones type. Yeah, so like, and actually you're you're very right. Like Vishnu Jan Swami, there's almost like that sort of mist, like Pied Piper kind of mystical kind of charismatic character. But there's another person who who's often compared to as well. What's the name of that devotee that is often up on the Rathyatra cart? Um, Jayananda. Jayananda, yeah. Right. A lot of people okay. who, who knew Jayananda said, you know, he was very similar. He had a, oh. a kind of... Um, very spontaneous, uh, loving mood of devotional service. It wasn't, he wasn't an institutional man. He wasn't, uh, he was very strict, but he was, I don't know, he was very heart led, if you know what I mean. And like they talk right. about, Jayananda would come back from working all day and he'd cook a feast at 10 o'clock at night, for example. Right. You know what I mean? Things like that. Not like, you know, that, which I'm not, not, there's no judgment either way, but you know, there's sometimes later there was a sort of thing of like, no, you have to go to bed at this time. You have to do this at this time. You have to do that right. at this time. You can't like a, almost like a formula way of doing it. Right. Whereas, whereas he was, he was kind of like living, bursting kind of with his devotional service, if you like. Wow. Um, yeah. And that was him. Like he was, um, the thing that I, that attracted me to him the most was he would give very, uh, I guess, deep, philosophical classes but incredibly down to earth like so because it was a shop front you could be sitting in the class and you could turn around and you could see the street you know you could see the world if you like and when he would talk about 
I guess, Christian conscious, but obviously a large part of it is talking about the nature of the world we see and our position within it and how it all works and all the rest of it and the modes and et cetera, et cetera. You could look out the window and it felt like it, it became alive what he was saying. Like it was incredibly tangible and it wasn't just philosophy, if you like. So I was really drawn to, to the philosophy, but particularly to him, like I was inspired. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I used to come along on Sundays and I still had my life and whatever. Like I, I, I never, <laughs> I honestly don't think that I'll tell you in a minute what happened, but I definitely don't think I would have like moved into the temple. Like it wasn't like, Oh yeah, I know what I want to do. I want to come and live in this basement and just hang out with these like guys, you know, who <laughs> would bless them all. Like, you know, many of them are still great friends of mine today, but it didn't, it didn't seem to be particularly dynamic I see. or, you know, like, Trebuvan that was though. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. I was like, I want to be part of that, whatever it is he has, kind of thing. And um and of course the Kirtans were amazing, you know, because there was all kinds of people would come, you'd have like quite a big congregation of people. And anyone who well, most people will know that there's a thing that at least in England we call it the Trebuvanath beat. You know, it's a certain beat, it's quite simple on the Murdanga, but it's very distinctive. And it was uh I don't know. It was hard to explain. Nowadays, um, there's a lot of uh, beautiful kirtan music where it's kind of people do dance, but a lot of it sit down and we kind of really get into it. This was sort of you, you know bouncing off the walls kind of um, kirtan, mm. you know. And he would often chant, lean his head back, and his whole neck would be bulging, and the veins would be coming out, and he'd be shaking his head and like stamping yeah. his foot, and you know, really just like mesmerizing. I mean, it was it was really quite amazing yeah. um and also yes like you know i guess that sense of um the there was no sense of him uh trying to be musical i mean it, it sounded good but it was it was him just calling out at the top of his from his heart like fully you know like that it was it was you know like sometimes described you got to call out like with with in complete dependency like like a baby for the mother right. it was that kind of um so there's something very appealing about that because it wasn't it wasn't um there was nothing intellectual about it you know right. it, it was oh yeah so that's Trubuvanath. uh but that's actually i think when he um i believe when he had uh contracted stomach cancer so he'd already sort of told devotees he was gonna he was gonna leave his body he knew that and uh, we had a kirtan at the manor, and um, you can see he's very skinny. But even still, even though he would have been in huge physical pain, he was he was still doing the kirtan. This was later on. Yeah, that was much later on. But um, but anyhow, um, it was amazing. Like you know, you would blow your mind. But um, one one day, um, so one thing that I especially I meditate on quite a lot recently is you know because I've made. The film, which we could talk about later, and you know, I've I've sort of been, I guess, I'd say questioning, but like thinking about um, certain things and speaking out where I feel like, not necessarily, definitely not necessarily that there's any um, philosophical um, anything wrong philosophically, but definitely in the application or the misunderstanding of certain things. I think people have run with certain things culturally and we've seen that it hurts people and stuff. So I've, I felt like I needed to speak honestly what I felt about that. 
Um, and I think sometimes I just privately kind of check myself and I think, you know, I've got to remember that I might I might be outspoken or whatever because I feel quite confident. But I have to remember that's only I have uh, my clarity, at least if I feel it's clarity, because I've been brought into this understanding of Christian consciousness. And I, ha I wanted to remember there was a time before that where I really was confused and, and didn't. So I remember even when I was coming to the temple and I, I liked it, I, uh, after one of the classes, I, I had a conversation with Tribhuvanath and some of the other devotees were there. And after the class, after that, some of the devotees said to me, oh, just see, Tribhuvanath smashed you. You know, you had this impersonal philosophy and like he completely like defeated you. But the, the amazing thing was I thought to myself, that's total nonsense. He didn't defeat me at all because I hadn't got clarity like on on a sort of a really clear understanding of it now i feel you know uh, relative to that very i guess on the inside if you like i feel like i know what the philosophy is right um i'm not saying that i'm always you know fully but i i feel like i've got a i i, I really deeply immerse myself in the blueprint of what it is so now when i assess things i'm obviously assessing them in the context of of that what i learned right and um, but i have to remind myself so that i don't get too cocky about things that mm. actually there was a time before that where i really was out in the wind you know uh and i try and remind myself of that so that you know in case i get you know maybe i'm not grateful for for the gifts that we've been given and don't get mm. above myself you know if you like right but, but anyhow um then one day you know Tribunath said, you know, you should come in more often. You should get more serious about your Krishna consciousness. And I kind of thought, as we can, you know, I thought, well, what, what's the problem? I can just come on a Sunday. <laughs> um, uh, but back in those days, it, 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 uh, maybe to some extent it still is, but there was the idea that, like, everything was really leading you towards, like, full commitment. Shaving you know? up, Sika. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember thinking back when I did make that move that, you know, yeah, the people who come on Sundays, they're just either <laughs> all kinds of things we used to talk, you know, whether they're karmis or they're spaced out or they're congregational kind of out of it people or whatever, all the things you might think. Um, and it's kind of funny now because obviously at different stages of your life, you are some of those different roles, you know, and it's kind of funny to yeah. look back. But anyhow... Um, he said that, and I thought, okay, well, I'll come in on, you know, help a bit in the week and this and that. And um, I, um, anyway, one day he said to me, because um, he used to go traveling and come back, and they used to put on Hare Krishna festivals for the public around Ireland and England at that time. And he said, oh, you could have come traveling with me if I had known. And I, that, then I just thought, wow, like that I would be interested in. And uh, so I did. I, I pretty much... In, within a week or something, I just went traveling with him. The first festival I helped out with in, was in Cork, I think, which is in the south of Ireland. We used to have these hundreds of big posters printed and thousands, tens of 20,000 flyers for every festival. And so my job was to, we were staying in a camping site, was to go out every day in Cork, go into shops and restaurants and bars and ask them if we could put up posters in their windows and just give out flyers all day. Um, and then we would put on after we'd do that for two weeks. We'd do Harry Nams and everything, and then we'd have a festival for the public. And we'd get typically sort of four or five hundred people would come. Um, it was pretty amazing. 
Um, but I used to remember how uh, blissful it was. Like uh, I would just stand on this particular bridge at the end of the day and wait for him to come. And he had this little orange VW camper van and I'd be watching on the river and I'd see him coming down. He'd pick me up and then the next day I'd go out and do the same thing. And it was, it was just blissful. It was, I don't know. I just, I was very happy to just help him. That was my, mm. my sweet spot kind of thing. Mm. And, um, uh, and I realized, I suppose, looking back, yeah, like I, I'm very blessed, I suppose, because I never would have been interested to join a more institutional version of that. Just wouldn't have been at all interested. Um, I would have probably just liked it a bit and come along or whatever. But uh, but this really just woke me up and and wanted, you know, I, I, and essentially for more or less the next seven years, I I gave every drop an ounce of my being to to helping him um i will i i you know did the, you know did the shave up and became a brahmachari and um and felt very very convinced uh that that would be it for my whole life i mean there was no idea of doing anything else or a plan b or what if it doesn't work or any of that it was just that that, that was it and it was very much a one-way thing and i mean it's interesting because i know nowadays devotees are more maybe pragma practical or they'll say we'll move move in and for a couple of years and then see how things go and stuff and i honestly <laughs> think that, that is a better plan to be honest because yeah. if it's going well what's the problem just keep doing it but you know you can just reassess it as you go along and um then there's also hopefully not this idea that you've failed if you if you realize that actually, you know, that was good. That was some training you did and like studying or whatever. And now you're ready for the next edge of your life. And the ironic thing is, is in the Vedic system, that's what we learn, right? The, the, you know, boys would go to the Gurukul at five and at 25, it's kind of almost like your rites of passages, then you get married and the, the rare few will stay. Um, but we're, we're taking it up at like 2021 having, and then feeling, you know, that youthful enthusiasm and almost f ignoring, I suppose, or just not even ignoring. We, we heard the classes that tell you about the, the different stages, but you kind of idealistic and you think, no, I can do it. And, you know, you, you sort of launch yourself into it. And in a way, you're, you're ignoring, I guess, a type of wisdom, I suppose, really, which is that, you know, there's a reason why most of them will get married at that time because yeah. it's the right time <laughs> and it's yeah. kind of like the 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 safe kind of path for most people um i find it really fascinating how a personality like tribhuvanath prabhu or Vishnu john swami or ayendra prabhu they attract they attract people to like dedicate their lives to like for a number of years whether it's like seven ten five mm. but still like a hundred percent this is what i want to do right now because i want to be with this person and do what they want to do what they're doing and and please mm. them it's like that's it's like that the whole thing about bhakti gives rise to more bhakti like when you see someone with with a lot of um that kind of power shakti like that bhakti shakti then you want to kind of just you they, you gravitate towards them and sometimes you want to like when if you're young you just want to dedicate your life i find it so fascinating and mm -hmm. and and i feel like people who have who had that 
they're like incredibly blessed. Like you're incredibly blessed to be able to, to, you know, have to make that choice and also meet such a person. Definitely. And I think, you know, um, there are things that, um, I can look back on and kind of, you know, I might, you know, you might sometimes like, even like we sometimes might with our parents and go, wow, well that affected me in this way or that way or the other way. But ultimately, yeah, it was a huge blessing. I mean, um, and, you know, regardless of the, the challenges or the struggles or whatever else, I, like I said earlier, I feel like it, uh, it made a deep, deep impression that, you know, whatever depth is there, even whatever's happening on the outside, there's something deep. It made a deep impression. And that, that um, has to be a blessing because it's like, for example, now if, um, if, okay, maybe, maybe it's only honest to say it's more if say if something difficult happens or if I have a really big challenge or say sometimes if uh, sometimes it does happen to me actually where like I find myself uh, partly falling asleep and I um, maybe wake up in that half asleep situation and I feel like I'm dying, like I'm slipping away, like something in, in that in-between thing. I will mm. immediately chant. Like wow. it's always the first immediate thing. Um, yeah. And I suppose that's what I mean. Like the, and hopefully like it always will be, you know, like, um, yeah, it's just, and I have doubts and I have different things and everything else, but it's, it's always there. You know what mm. I mean? Because it was so burnt in, I suppose. Yeah. And you carry that with you. I'm sure like, yeah. throughout, throughout now, even it's been years and years and years, but you still carry those experiences with you from being with him and having his association, his instruction and spending time and all that stuff is still stays with you. Right. Yeah. And I suppose also um, seeing an example of, you know, Prabhupada uses the term cent per cent, like there, there's not, there isn't even 1% that's held back. Like it's everything on the line. Like, and, mm. and, and so I guess, there's something appealing about that. I mean, even, even in the mature world, there's a, there's something appealing in that for anyone who has that faith in anything <laughs> in right. one sense, because it's just like, wow, how, like you're seriously dead dedication, I suppose is always um, attractive. Um, but there's something, I guess, more appealing when you feel like that dedication is connected up to the, the source of all sources, you know, mm. um, so yeah, it was it was uh, it was magical, and I remember one time uh, Sachinanda Swami. I I I was in Vrindavan, and I he he used to do these um, kind of retreat type things at Radhakund, and I went for a day. And afterwards, I went up and I said hello to him, and I told him I was at Tribhuvanath, and he said, "Yeah, Tribhuvanath is very convinced and very convincing." Um, and I think that's the thing. Like it wasn't um, like he was completely convinced, and so. Yeah, I guess it rubbed off. I think the thing is, is that um, it's a very, looking back, trying to make sense of it all, um, like I wouldn't change it for anything. I mean, it was, I definitely realized it was a huge blessing. But at the same time, like you can, if you look at it in a slightly different way, a more kind of a few steps back kind of way you can go, you could even start thinking like it was reckless. It was, um, 
it was so single-minded it was completely oblivious to uh like what might happen it's like aiming for the north star and not considering what happens if you miss right but the thing is like most of us we we, we were all on it. it's like almost like if you imagine like you're watching an animation cartoon and you're aiming for the north star and you're seeing it like nowadays you might tune in for example like you know that guy who jumped from space baumgarten or something for red bull he jumped out of some space thing and he flew down. It's almost like the world is watching and you're like, is he going to make it? Is he going to make it? And you're like, oh, wow, he's going to make it. He's going to make it. Oh, he didn't make it. Right. <laughs> and so like in that sense, for what we set out to do, we kind of made it a bit of the way, but we didn't make it. So it's kind of like in that sense, you can look back and you can think of, well, there was no, we didn't have a net. Like we went so all out for it. We didn't really, so that can seem reckless. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you could kind of think, well, if we were already thinking in terms of nets and stuff, then we would have never had that kind of yeah. belief, you know? So it's a sort of yeah. a catch 22, but so it is what it is. Um, but um, I mean, what do you, what do you mean by like making it? Cause, cause the well, way I see it, the way I see it is like in spiritual life, it's like, it's like if something is infinite, if it's like, we're reaching for something infinite, how can it be like, Oh, I've made it somewhere. Like it's not, it's, it's, it's like, in there's like infinite amounts of advancement that you can make. And it's never like, I don't think anyone who is on that level thinks like, okay, I'm there, you know? No, I agree. And I a hundred percent, but I guess what I mean at that time, making it meant um, never um, always being cent percent engaged with oh, any distraction completely right. without any belongings, without any sense of personal, uh investment of doing like just doing doing serving completely full out day after day year after year forever that yeah. was what i meant by making it like that That's version good. of it let's just say right, um, right. and so and then realizing that 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 i i wasn't able to maintain that um seemed like not making it now mm, i see you know what i mean even though yeah really that 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 was just like um even an athlete, you know, they, they train for the Olympics. They don't make it. They can come back for the next Olympics or they can train or they can change their sport or whatever, you know. So it's it's never an end, but it, it can seem like a mo yeah, at that one point in time, like a um, like a failure. I see. I see what you're saying. So you were there. You were there for a brahmachari for seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Nine, well, sort of it, I when I sort of uh, handed in <laughs> my notice if you like it was seven years but there was a couple there was about a year at the end where yeah i was sort of uh i was probably transitioning if you like but mm -hmm. um but yeah sort of 1994 to sort of 2000 yeah 2001 was when tribuna passed away that was when i kind of probably six and a half years yeah oh wow okay yeah. And how, uh, how was that him? Like what were the circumstances of him passing away? He had, yeah. He, you said he had, he had cancer or something. Yeah. So, so, um, I'll, I'll just give a little context initially. So, uh, I joined in Dublin. Um, we used to spend time between Inishrath, which is on the Island in the North of Ireland and then traveling around Ireland, putting on festivals. Then, um, in 1995, we went to Africa. Um, and then for subsequent years, every year, we used to go and do a big tour of three countries in East Africa and then later more countries as well, putting on festivals for uh, mostly for the local communities, but obviously also the Indian community as well. Um, and that was very 
like a huge challenge, as you can imagine. Um, and um, I think it was a year, so it would have been around 1999. Trubuvanath, um was in Africa, and he fell. I think he had malaria, um, and he fell in the shower, and he, he was unconscious. And then he came through to he 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 went to the doctor. He had a hairline fracture in his skull. Oh my god! Um, and the thing is. Again, it's one of these things. Looking back, you know, now we're 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 probably for the best. We're all much more practical and, and all of that. But he was, oh, he was. See, I don't know whether he was really just completely detached or whether he was just sort of. I don't know. But his thing was, he didn't like to fuss or he sort of would always be like oh i'm fine and you know he wouldn't really he wasn't like oh i need to look out and maybe now in today's language you would say like he didn't he didn't look after himself maybe he didn't have like the idea and i remember as brahmacharya said the idea of self-care was almost like disgusting right. like the idea of even thinking about that i mean now I, I would say now that that is probably wrong in all honesty yeah but but that was the way we were it was like it's just you didn't it was probably over sacrifice like to the point where you're not you're not you know i don't know i think you know what i mean and yeah i see i see what you're saying yeah and so so he kind of just carried on and you know then um i think even from that time he lost his sense of taste and smell um oh, really? and and then um he was in Africa and he wasn't feeling right. They, the the Jani family took him to the hospital and he they said he had stage four stomach cancer. Um, and so he came back to the UK. He told us and yeah, they said. I mean, they said he had months, but it it, it ended up being maybe nine months or something. Um, but yeah, it was really in a weird way. I'd kind of I'd I'd sort of almost. Um, not dreamt it in sleeping, but I uh, even years before somehow I had a sense that something like that was going to happen. I don't know why. Um, and yeah, within a short time he was gone. And um, you know, it was at the same time I was making this transition, and um, a lot of things happened at once around that year. It was a very difficult time, very traumatic. Because see, for me, like he was like my north star. Like I, I would. I would. I was almost. I would consider myself. It was a bit like being a, um, like an MI6 agent or something. You know, you're in a, you're in a hotel somewhere. Wherever you are, you get a fax or you get your instructions and you're on a mission and you go and do it. Mm. Like it was like that. And it was a great sense of purpose in it. I mean, I loved it. But, you know, we were never in one place. You know, I didn't have. That's what became hard at the end. Was like we didn't even have a bookshelf. Like you were just always moving. There was nothing permanent. You know. And so I was thinking about this when we were going to have this conversation. I think that gives you an incredible sense of resilience because you can kind mm. of almost deal with anything. And I still feel like that. I almost feel like right now if a massive bomb went off outside my window there, I would actually in a way I'd almost be excited. It would like it would just kick in the adrenaline. You'd be like, okay, what are we going to do? Like I don't think I'd be phased by it. 
because right. we're all kinds of stuff. Like we were in, there's so many stories of crazy, dangerous things. And we were held up by gunpoint and all kinds of crazy things that happened. So now it's almost like there's nothing that could really surprise you. Except wow. what I what I realized though, being married now and having kids and stuff, is that that type of resilience that I felt it gave me was one that works when you're on your own. Because it's kind of like, uh, but I think there's a different resilience you have to learn in living with others yeah. um, and having to manage and facilitate uh, their needs. Yeah. And I think that, that there's huge growth in that and it's been a wonderful thing. But I think there's that sort of almost like a soldier. He comes back from war and that PTSD thing, like uh, that you go into a certain mode, like soldier mode. Um, and it's often not very conducive for social interactions. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so having to then uh, have resilience, which is more about like communication and give and take and all of these things is a whole new chapter that came later, which I think was, is a really important um, softening kind of phase. Mm. Because when we were with Trebuvanat, it was like complete mission mode all the time. Um, but anyhow, so when he. You trans- when you transitioned, uh, did you, like, how did that happen? Yeah, so um, I kind of knew, you know, sort of uh, in 2000 that, uh, you know, I realized I'm not going to be a Brahmatrai my whole life. And um, so I started thinking, you know, about um, getting married and what I might do next and stuff. And. Um, I remember um, I was engaged actually to one devotee um, for sort of, I don't know, maybe six months. And I I don't know what I was thinking in retrospect, but I decided that um, Kavi Chandraswamy invited me to travel around the world with him in 2000. And I decided to do that. And so I guess, I don't know how I was thinking that would work in relation to this person that's engaged in. And, um, but anyway, the day before I left, she uh, broke up with me. And I remember I was, I was heartbroken. I was devastated completely. And so I went to India. I was in, um, I went to Mayapur for the, for maybe two months, you know, and I was really just trying to get over this whole thing. Um, and then, uh, I went to spend time with Kavi Chandraswamy in Japan in Indonesia, um, and then actually in in Japan, I met uh, Vaisheshika Prabhu at that time. He was visiting, and oh, he wow. he's uh, I really like him a lot. And um, also at that time, um, what's his name? David Mrithaswamy was there for a bit as well. Um, and then I went to uh, Australia and New Zealand, and I met my friend Paramakruna. I don't know if you know Paramakruna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he and I, uh, we traveled. I'm not sure. Yeah, he's an older, big, jovial, jolly Aussie guy. Um, he's lovely. And um, so we went to Sydney, Byron Bay, Brisbane, Auckland, or, you know, all over. And we did Harry Nams and everything. And it was really nice. And then he and I went to America in that year. And we uh, traveled around in a van together. I think we drove like 30,000 miles. We went basically to every single Rathiatra like in Canada, North America. It was wow. it was brilliant. Um, and, um, you know, we would go, we would drive and we would stay at temples and we would, or sometimes we'd camp out and we would distribute books. And 
and it was great. It was a real, it was a real, but I was, I was sort of, I was coming, I was getting over the thing as this time went on. And then we flew to Mexico and we did, um, we went to Machu Picchu, you know, that walk up into the Aztec thing up in the mountains. Yeah. But we did a Harinam in Cusco, this mountain uh, town right up in the mountains in Mexico. And I never forget it. There was, um, there was a temple, but there was this little kind of really shanty town kind of Brahmacharya ashram. And there was this little boy called Abai Charan. He was like five. And a whole bunch of us, we went out and we did Harinam through the streets of Cusco. And this little boy, Abai Charan, led the Kirtan. Uh, it was it was great. So that was a whole adventurous year. It was wonderful. And then I kind of came back, and that was when Tribunat wasn't well, and all of that happened. So I I went back to Birmingham because in the UK, I, I went to Africa in 1995. Tribunat wanted to start the festivals there. He, he and his devotee called Peter, they essentially, we got on a plane, we flew to Nairobi. I didn't have a driving license. I'd probably partially learned to drive, not, not really. Um, and the idea was they were going to leave me there. I was going to try and raise money for this festival tour and set it all up and organize it all. So they 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 drove me to they we arrived in Nairobi. The next day, Peter took me out in this van that he had, and he showed me how he would go to offices and sell paintings and stuff to try and raise money for these festivals. And the next day, he and Trubunat left, and they left me with this van. And I didn't see Trubunat for five months. They left you. They left you. They left in Africa. To yeah. the UK. Uh, they went back to the UK. Yeah, they went back to the UK. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, so here I was in Africa uh, in 1995. I mean, I was staying at the temple, but I was on my—I mean, I was on my own in the sense that I was on my own in terms of I was the outsider who came on my own. Right. And um, and yeah, I—I—I I, 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 I mean, I paid for a driving license in the market for twenty dollars, like it was, it was a fake one, but like so I could have it. <laughs> I didn't do a test, and then. Um, then in, in Africa as well, then it's changed now because I've been back since. But driving in Nairobi, like the, the roundabouts uh, don't like they're sort of like uh, rubbish dumps and, and they're up and down and all over the place. And they had these things called matatus that look like spaceships. They're kind of converted vans, but they have like flashing lights and bits sticking out of them and yeah. 20 people on the roof and people hanging out. It's all really dangerous. And there's no traffic lights. So you're coming along to the roundabout. You just have to basically stop, start, honk your horn and make your way through. Right. Um, and this is how I learned to drive. Like I just was thrown into that and I would drive around um, and I would go around. Later I got a driver, but I would go around and I would um, sell paintings. And I was making about 5,000 pounds a week uh, back then, which was a lot of money. Wow. And, and sending it back to UK so that they could come and do this big festival tour. And then um, I organized, you know, all the halls and the permissions and the marketing and all the rest of it. And then the back to the United players and a whole bunch of devotees came and we toured around East Africa and we did the first festival tour. Um, so, but I remember, yeah, I didn't hear from, I mean, I don't think I did hear from him for five months because there wasn't really phones, but I remember a fax coming mm. and uh, I was just, ecstatic you know <laughs> that i'd like because it because it was like i was running on that sort of um uh currency of you know him being pleased with me right Doesn't and do um, doing and things yeah and like you know the measure of it all is like that you know he's happy basically right, right. um and um anyway so that was all a great success we did that and then when uh, in 1996, we moved from Ireland to England to Birmingham because the temple in Birmingham, the temple president there had, had basically 
Guns and Raj at the time, took all of most of the congregation and all the devotees with him, and and actually had moved across the street to a house opposite, and taken the private morti, and it was all a big mess. And then I think that the temple was going to close down, so Chubhuvanath was asked, "Could you relocate and base your festival program there and keep it keep it open?" So yeah. we went with him, and and we we stayed there for for many years. It was like our base for the festivals. Um, it was quite bizarre at the time because we would do Sunday feasts um, and we would have advertised in the city center for people to come and people would be walking along the street to come to the temple. There's a house, but, you know, to the temple. And um, and nowadays, I think, you know, it's a much more relaxed relationship between different yeah. mats and stuff in ISKCON. But at that time, it was really raw. They just moved across the street and they used to try and intercept people coming along the street to the <laughs> temple to get them to go in there. Um, wow. And then sometimes we'd have a temple room full of people uh, in the Sunday class and they would, this bunch of people that looked like us, they were devotees, would come and do a massive Harinam outside the window, looking in the window at us. And that oh, was them. Wow. So it was a really bizarre time. Um, then they moved further away and it was, you know, but anyway, the temple is still, the community in Birmingham is still very strong. The, the temple is, is no longer where it was, but they're looking for somewhere else. But, um, anyhow, the reason I'm saying all of that is then when I came back and I was thinking about getting married, I, I was thinking, where am I going to settle myself? Right. Um, and I knew Birmingham and I knew the community of people and I, they were friendly and I, you know, really, um, and sort of people there that I liked and I knew, and I thought, well, London is kind of expensive and Birmingham might be more affordable to live in. So I, I sort of went back to Birmingham and I met, um, well, I knew her and her family, my wife now, Tina for a long time, but obviously we hadn't any particular interaction. Um, and so now she was like 18 or 19 and uh, I kind of liked her and um, we started to get to know each other. And then because I was in the mindset, like I understood the culture, I knew that my mindset was, well, I can't just mess around. Like I've got to be serious if I'm going to do this. And so I knew like if we were going to get involved, we were going to get married. Yeah. And so, we we told her father like really early on because of that, and he was not at all happy. So Tina's from an Indian um, uh, background, right? And so yeah, it was really um, it was not at all entertained or accepted. And and so those years for me were super hard. Chubhuvanath passed away. We told her dad; he rejected me. The community kind of rejected us because they thought. Um, I don't know. They just nobody really spoke to us, so it was. It felt like a kind of um, a sort of a betrayal, I suppose. And so um, we kept seeing each other, but it was it was a really traumatic, difficult time looking back. Um, uh, but anyway, in the end, um, five six years later, um, uh, her older sister got married and. You know, then we also got married, and her her, her parents accepted it, um, which is which was great, you know. But it was it was hard that period. Um, Tell us so, more now about uh, kind of your more recent, I would say, kind of experiences in Krishna consciousness, mm. like like it sh like you're, what you're telling us shaped you to who you are now, right? So. <clears throat> I feel like there's a lot to say about who you are now as a devotee from 
from when you were, you know, in as a brahmachari and younger and with yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I, I sometimes describe the experience, particularly of going from that uh, mindset where you're working really, really hard and you're dedicating yourself completely, but you're not accumulating anything for yourself. So like I had no money, like at all. Uh, yeah. I was nearly 30 and, you know, although, like I said, I would never change anything. And I was really grateful for that experience. Materially speaking, I was kind of like, you could say 10 years kind of behind. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, there was no internet, so we didn't watch TV. We didn't listen to the radio. We didn't read, news, read newspapers. We, I knew nothing really about what was going on yeah. in the world. I didn't even know who in the UK, for example, the prime minister was. I just didn't know anything. And so the experience of then trying to, let's say, interpret the skills that you've developed, which are legitimate transferable skills as a time as a devotee into language of the world of work and trying to behave and present yourself into the world of work was quite a transition, I'd say. Yeah, and I describe it sometimes like, you know, you see in the movies where they're coming back from outer space and they go, okay, we're about to enter the Earth's atmosphere and it's turbulence and it's sort of bouncing <laughs> around and all of like that. It was basically like that, <laughs> coming back into the material world. And um, and I was really lucky. I remember I applied for loads of jobs. Like My, my father said to me, um, if you want to make money, then you need to get into property. And I know you're into property as well. We had some chats yeah. before. Yeah. Because um, my dad had also made money and put it into property and, and all of that. And um, so he said, you should try and learn about it first. So I got a job. I, I was applying for jobs as, as an estate agent or a realtor in America. Right. Um, and I, I wasn't really getting much luck at first. And then I remember exactly where I was. It was quite close to the temple I was driving. And this guy rang me and he said... Um, Oh, you know, I got your application or your letter or whatever. And I was like, okay. And he said to me, um, well, were you part of ISKCON? And I said, yeah, because I, I put it on my CV and all that. Yeah. And his, na- his name was Nav Sharma. And he was, uh, he'd known devotees and stuff. So he was quite excited about the fact that I was kind of connected to that. And <laughs> oh, so he, cool. yeah, so he kind of, he gave me um, a chance really, you know, like he sort of, and he sort of rooted for me, I guess. And he, he gave me a job and um i um i mean to put it in perspective i worked for three years doing that and it was ten thousand pounds a year so like it was a super entry level job um yeah. was this but, like um, a realtor position yeah like a sales negotiator you know like people would sure. inquire and you'd show them the houses and try and sell them and stuff so yeah. but it was good because i kind of got i was easing my way back into the whole world of work but also i was learning about property and stuff and um I'm very grateful to my parents. You know, they gave me um, a small amount of money, which uh, we invested into a house. And then like two or three years later than that, I sold the house for three times that price um, and then used that to buy three other houses. And and then I bought a house. They gave me a deposit for um, a house, which I bought, which was had been two terraced houses that had been turned into one house, which I then turned back into two houses, lived in one, rented the other one out. And so over a period of, of time, I, I and it was, a, it was a good time, like the property prices were going up a lot. So I kind of 
I went for it in a way. And I, wow. you know, it's all relative, but like I kind of got a bit of progress on that side. And, um, but I was still like not making much money in my job as such, but I, it was investing in assets. Sure. Sure. Um, and then, so I always talk about that, like there's the stockbroker, then there's the monk, then there's the property. And then I was feeling a lacking on the sort of community purpose type stuff. So I went and got a job as um, running mentoring programs for young people. Um, and it was kind of more of a, I guess you could call it like a social work type. It was a project manager, but it was it was helping people in the community type job. Yeah. Um, and that was good. That was like quite a lot more pay. And it was, I enjoyed that. Um, and so, but just, so then I went back after that, I did that for three years. Then I went back to university and I did an MBA, a business master's. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And because um, I guess I was feeling like I had, I knew I could, I felt like I could do much bigger and better things, but I was kind of, um, so I wanted to try and accelerate that, I suppose, a bit. Sure. Um, and um but I did something, my, my research was on a thing called venture philanthropy, which for me was super exciting because if, like I say, there's this yo-yo thing, like I had this making money side and this kind of like helping and benefiting society side. And I think the whole world was split like that. You know, it used to be like, it's not so much now, but there was for a long, long, long time, like obnoxious and horrible and self-serving and cutthroat uh behavior could be passed off as all oh, business is business mm. right and that was the world of business was like this you know shark infested waters kind of idea and yeah okay if you want to do something good just give a check to charity like you know but they were separate so what excited me about the what i did my research on for my mba was this idea of how do these two worlds come together like how can business people um like apply the skills that they've developed in business maybe towards impact and so um that was called venture philanthropy so it's like uh, giving in charity but not just money like networks intelligence on um strategy all of these other skills um and then later it then it became like the idea of social enterprise how could you have an uh, an entity that was about delivering impact for society but also had a business model behind it and now it's even further than that into purpose-driven businesses businesses that make money but actually core to what they're actually doing is solving a big problem in society right. um so like it's more and more converging which is which is brilliant and i suppose yeah. that it was an external representation of my inner uh integration you know these two parts of me didn't need to be separate anymore either if you wow. know what i mean sure. so so all of that was going on. And then after I finished my MBA, I was a bit um, kind of lost, I suppose. I didn't really know what to do next. And whenever I'm talking to younger people, I'll always tell them that. that like, there's going to be probably multiple times in your life where you don't have a clue what you're going to do next. And like, you feel really confused. And like, it's okay. It's totally fine. Like, yeah. it's just a, a phase. Like, and sometimes you need that to figure out what's going to happen next. Um, but anyway, I started to look backwards and I thought, wow. And Trubuvanath actually always was interested in 
different ways of presenting Christian consciousness. So he had a, a nine projector system, which used to show this thing called Krishna vision. I don't know if you ever saw it. Oh my it God. Was, I saw that. I love uh, that. It was amazing. So it's like a 30 yeah. foot by 10 foot screen, massive. Yeah. And nine different projectors with all these slides and they interacted and they had this music by Krishna Prema. And yeah. it was like awesome. I mean, it was like so epic. And the thing was, <laughs> We used to do that in halls in, in the UK, but imagine we did that in, that in Africa in like slums. We'd set up this whole screen and we'd have these things. And so you're in a, a huge slum with this screen in the middle of the night, like it was all like could be 3,000 people there and like this whole Krishna th vision thing is blasting out. Like it was, it was amazing. Wow. Wow. Um, and I think that was very magical as well because I think – and it happens anytime, I think, when you go on Harinam, but especially when you – like Africa for us at that time, at least for me, like I feel incredibly at home when I go to India or Africa or anywhere where for a lot of people it might feel chaotic. Yeah. I feel – I love that. I just feel oh. really at home because it feels like, I don't know, exciting, I suppose. Yeah. Because you just don't know what's going to happen. It's kind of like – and and so when we were doing that in in the context of Krishna consciousness, it was really exciting because, you know, it's not just the theory of Krishna consciousness that you know, or the idea that everyone has this living spark inside them, and you know they're ultimately eternally like connected to Krishna and stuff. You would kind of see it happen because we would present it to these people who otherwise just living in the middle of nowhere why would they why would it invoke something in them and it brings them to life and you'd see these you know like i remember one in particular kam kunji it was actually probably went to kam kunji actually it's a slum in nairobi wow. and and we had this huge big stage we built with this massive big backdrop of all that rangoli indian kind of mirrors and colors and everything and um we did this huge festival there in this big kirtan and like there was about three or four thousand people and they're all coming alive you know dancing and chanting and so i guess for me the things that really i go run deep as well are that like seeing krishna consciousness practically come to life through right. the impact that it has on people who otherwise really why would they like there's no other logical reason it's not like they were interested in that kind of thing or whatever else it just we turned up in their fields they came along and the the reaction that happened when we presented it like you could see it mm. um and so those experiences are very powerful um and we saw it around ireland around england as well and uh, we we used to do every year at glastonbury which is a huge i guess it's like coachella or something some huge big festival with music and everything and people would come to our tent and spend the whole night dancing in there wildly yeah. the whole night and we did it in ireland as well and so you can sort of see that there's there's no there's no rational reason why the reaction people have should be the way it is but it happens mm. um and so that it always felt like there was something really magical about that like you're kind of witnessing the power of i guess the holy name and and, and krishna consciousness affect in the way it affected people i mean i guess definitely it was it, it was also largely removing that driving i mean he would get up and lead kirtan for seven hours straight at full pelt the entire time um and it would never i mean it would just go on and on and on i mean like that whole time like at full energy like and the crowd wouldn't like they would dance that whole time as well oh um God. it was amazing um but um 
I'm not sure where we were. So yeah, so I was thinking back. So he always had an interest in multimedia, and so he would yeah. get cameras given to him and different things. So we had a, a phone camera, uh, and in 1995, I don't exactly know the circumstances of how it happened, but I, I, got the, I, I don't know. Anyway, I ended up with a camera in, in my hands, yeah. Yeah. and um, I filmed a load of stuff, and then um, we came back to the UK, and um, uh, one devotee actually, uh, Jai Krishna's brother, um, I think Koshik, I think his name is. He uh, had, I spent some time in his house. So the, these tapes were high eight tapes. I transferred them to VHS and he had two VHS machines. And so I would play what we'd recorded on one VHS machine. And then when there was a bit I wanted to record or splice into the edit, I would press record on the other machine. Oh, cool. <laughs> so it's <was> very primitive. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there was a sort of a three second delay as well from when you pressed record until it actually engaged. So you had to, it was quite, you know, you had to sort of gauge it. Anyway, I made this sort of 45 minute film, which was, um, which was all right. You know, it, it really captured the essence of, of what we were doing. And so that was my sort of beginning of filmmaking. Although I never considered myself a filmmaker. I just thought, well, we've got to show people what we're doing and they would support what we were doing. Um, and it was very effective in that. But we had to then post people a VHS tape or, invite them to watch it in a room. Obviously, there's no way in those days to, to show it to people. Right. Um, but then when I was doing the mentoring programs many years later again, I, I, I made a film again, and um, it enabled us to get more support for what we were doing. And so when I was kind of confused after the MBA as to what I was going to do next, I thought, hey, I've seen a pattern of using film to, uh, I guess, with, with social impact, like using film to capture stories that could maybe inspire people to to do good stuff. So that was how I kind of came up with the idea of starting a f film company with the idea of trying to do tell stories that would inspire people. And I remember as well the name of the business. I, I remember sitting in my car talking to another friend who was starting a business and we were talking about names and Oh, you know, wave consulting, you know, all these different names we're coming up with. And um, <laughs> um and I remembered Tribhuvanath, one of the one of the classes, I think it was the last class he gave to the Pandavasena at the Bhaktivinanda Manor in Prabhupada's room. And he knew he was leaving his body and all of this. And one of the things that really struck me, he said, he said, it's really simple. He said, you just have to find something that inspires you and do that. Obviously, he meant for Krishna. Um, and then it's true, isn't it? Like if you if something really inspires you, like there's fuel there, isn't there? Like, you know, yeah, totally. you know, you don't need to be thinking about oh, like, do I have to do it? Whatever you want to do it, right? Mm. And um, and so I thought uh, that's how it came up with be inspired films. Mm. And um, and yeah, so then I I started that company just over 10 years ago. And uh, slowly, slowly, you know, we sort of built it up. And the last six years in a row, we've won this big awards in the UK, which is a global awards, but the UK part of it, we we won the best um, video production company um, for six years in a row. So, um, wow, yeah, and I'm really proud of that, but especially because when I started it, I decided we were only going to tell stories about social impact. And we stuck to that. So, like, if people came to us with a 
as something to do which is purely commercial, we wouldn't do it. Or it didn't fit with our ethics, we wouldn't do it. Um, and so that, so I am very proud of that. Yeah, because we've made it successful whilst staying true to kind of, I guess, our core values. Um, you know, you know, something I want to ask you is that, you know, when people transition from brahmachari to householder or not a brahmachari anymore, there's this real struggle of, of making money and, mm. and kind of reintegrating with the world. And, and I want to know, like, what would you say to someone who is actually going through that stage now? Because it seems for you. I could be wrong, but it wasn't really that much of a struggle per se. It was like you had this like natural like way of, okay, I can do property and I can do this mentorship thing. And also, oh, okay, maybe I'll start a film company because I'm into that. And everything you did became successful. I mean, you could say that. Um, but like in the, in the property thing, like you, I mean, technically speaking, earning 10 grand a year from a purely material point of view isn't really that successful, is it? Like from a purely, but because I was doing these other things alongside it, like I had to sort of do my dues or spend my time because like as far as the material world was concerned, like I was just starting at zero. So I kind of had to start at the bottom mm. and put in that work. And also I was, I was adapting like, you know, even my, my boss Nav, he was telling me like, you know, he was, I guess he was kind of coaching me. He was saying like, you need to change the language you use. Like people don't understand what you're talking about when you're saying you're going to a program, for example, right. <laughs> you know, or all these kind of things. Um, right. Or, um, and you know, they used to, they used to laugh at me. They used to think I was hilarious. I was like super skinny, like super skinny. Uh, and I used to run around with like my little bag and um, I, like, cause at those times, like, I don't know that maybe there wasn't like so much vegan food and vegetarian food. Like I would eat, I mean, they tell me, I don't remember, but like I used to eat like a block of cheese or, you know, like really weird things. I thought I was super weird. Right. right. Um, and so, I mean, it, it, it's easy, isn't it? Like, I mean, it's all relative, but like somebody might say, Oh, you know, I've done all the, like things that are successful, but like it, there was loads of times along the way where it wasn't, you know, I, I, all it was, was I was relentless on, but it didn't always look like that along the way. I mean, it's like anything, isn't it? It's like that thing people say, it, it looks like this, or it, it might look like this, but it, it's right. really this, you know, when you, yeah. when you zoom in, it's gone like that. Yeah. 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 So like, I remember distinctly my boss at that time, uh, well, the regional, the Nav was the big boss, but this guy was called Steve. And he was the head of the estate agents. And he was a proper working class guy, he used to be a butcher, you know, and he used to swear all the time. Now, it's just so funny. I remember observing this within myself. So like as a devotee, I mean, then, not only did we not swear, we didn't even, we didn't hear swearing either because we weren't around people who would swear. And it would never even came into the vaguest parts of our consciousness, right? Right, right. Um, and so I was in this office all day with him and like you're hearing him and he's swearing all the time and like it wasn't affecting me. And then I started to notice like in my dreams, I would hear him like and he'd be swearing. So like, <laughs> it was slowly, I could see how it was slowly invading into my consciousness. And then I noticed how I wouldn't swear, but I, I would think a swear in my head. Right. And then to the point where then I would swear. <laughs> and it's just so funny. 
like mm. you know just to see how removed you were and how you know but they used to think i was really odd i mean some of them looking back would say uh one of my other bosses from that period in a different office said oh i always knew you were going to do good things and all that but like on the face of it i was still a junior sales consultant working yeah. away um then but i was i was always hard working driven determined focused you know all of those things i think if you apply yourself and you have all those things and you really are want to succeed and you're willing to put in all the effort and you have a good attitude all of the the the, the criteria i think you can't but progress yeah um you know to what level it goes who knows but um but yeah, I think also I wasn't mental about the idea of making money because right. or thinking like, oh, now that's materialistic or whatever. Um, that's key. I, that's, that's huge. Super key. Yeah. Yeah. Because and it's not just a narrative that devotees have. You know, some people who grow up in a working class family have that, you know, like money is bad or money is, uh, you know, it's selfish or it's this or it's that. It's like I also so back to when I was growing up, like. I always had a, like, if I wanted something, I want the best. Mm. Why else? Why would I want anything except the best? Right. <laughs> like, like it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Um, but obviously I'm not willing to sacrifice everything to get the best. I, it's a balancing act between wanting something, being willing to work hard for it, but not sacrificing yourself in the process where it's like, you're going to kill yourself to get it. Mm. You know, it's all about kind of gauging that balance. And um, that's just part of growing up, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Tell us a little bit now about um, this film that you made that, mm. that came out recently. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because my 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 business is, um, you know, we, we make, we've made thousands of films, but they're short films. Like they're mostly sort of three minute, but you know, we've made a few longer ones, but they're, they're always client briefs, right? So a client comes to you, this is what we want to do. They pay you, you do it. And that's, that's, that's great. It's creative. It's, it's all that. But I'd always, um, there's an old, there's a sort of a thing that you hear people talking about that often the project that you do on the weekends or the one that no one's paying you to do, you get way more satisfaction out of because you're able to follow your own creativity. You know, you're, you're doing it for the love and the joy of it. Um, and it's ironic, isn't it? When you're getting paid for it, which is obviously great, um, yeah. there's a set number of days for it. Okay, the budget means you can do this many filming days, this many editing and so on. So the the creativity and uh, often things are um, contained within the parameters of the project, right? So I'd always felt like, oh, it would be great to, to do a fully creative project that was... Um, you know, like a full-on feature film, especially documentaries, because I was interested in social issues and stuff. Um, so uh, my friend Ravin, who um, is a devotee, and who he was, I think, chairman of the UK part of Food for Life in Davin. Um, every year or every two years, they do a fundraising thing for the Sandy Pani Muni School in Rindavan, uh, which is a school for girls. And um, I didn't really know a huge amount about it, to be honest, but he called me up and he said, I'm doing this trip. It's going to be driving from Mumbai to Kanyakumari, so all the way down the West Coast, which is 1,800 kilometers, and it's going to be in, in tuk-tuks. 
and it's a fundraiser to help the school. Would you like to do it? And I was like, wow, what a what a great adventure. You know, I'd love to do it. Um, and also I was excited because I, I, I've been to India many times. I, I really like it. And um, I thought it would be an adventure to drive the tuk-tuks, but also you get to see India by road, like all the way. I thought it'd be fascinating. Yeah. Um, and then we'd get to go to Vrindavan as well and visit the school. And I, I hadn't been in Vrindavan for 20 years because that's another thing. In 1997, I spent about nine months there doing the Bhakti Shastri, which was which was a great experience. Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really felt like, I don't know why I hadn't gone back in between, but I'd really felt, again, like I'd sort of imbibed something of Rindavan in an intangible way, just kind of like being there for that time. And it's almost like through the pores of your skin, almost like something was there. And I used to walk most mornings um, from my Japa around the whole Prickerman path around, like down through Keshi Ghat and around. And I just, I don't know, I had a feeling like of something from, from sure. being there. Sure, yeah. And um, so I thought, wow, what a, what a great excuse to go back. And um, so that was it initially. And then I thought, wow, you know what, maybe this, is the opportunity to to make this into a film the yeah. trip and also to try to understand what are the factors at play that mean that many girls don't have such encouragement for education and then if they do go into education what are the factors that then pull them out of education before they you know, go too far within it. Um, and uh, I wanted to learn more about it for myself, but I also felt like instead of, because of my world, you know, social investment, international development, there's ideas and, I, and, and ideas about like, you know, countries overseas and what the issues are. But I thought, well, why don't, like the best way to learn about this would be to talk to people on the ground and hear it from them, what the issues are. So yeah. we we created this Facebook page that we we did ads and things and we had ten thousand people who lived in the route that we were going to pass through, mm -hmm. and we connected with them. We said, look, we're going to be passing through. Come out and see us and talk to us and share your stories and stuff. So we went and we did the trip, um, and we met some people along the way, but it totally didn't work out the way that we'd planned. So we would. We underestimated the challenge of driving two to three hundred miles a day in a tuk-tuk as well. So we were trying to film along the way. We would get to the locations sometimes at eleven o'clock at night, and people would have come to see us, and they would have left because we weren't there. Oh there was God. also an element of, I mean, I'm kind of guessing, but I feel like um, naturally a lot of the people who wanted to share their stories were, were girls, and you know they would say, "Yeah, we're going to come." And then last minute they would say, oh, we have a family illness or they couldn't come, like some kind of excuse. And I, I kind of figured, you know, either they weren't allowed to go or they kind of thought last minute, hey, this is going to be a bit weird going to a hotel to see these people we don't even know and, right. and all of that. And so it just didn't really materialize it how we planned. But we did talk to enough people along the way to, to kind of get a feel for it. Um, anyway, we came back to the UK. I put out a trailer. And, um, you know, on the most part, you know, um 99% of people were were really encouraging and but i had this one thing that stood out for me was this, it was a criticism and it was it was a couple of things there was a few layers to it one was this is a a trendy topic you're just jumping on the bandwagon cuz you want to benefit from that right um now obviously that 
wasn't true because I didn't even look for the, you know, it kind of came to me. Um, and then the other thing was, why are you doing this as a man? Like what, I suppose, why would a man be interested in this topic as in it's a woman's issue? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I didn't really see that coming, to be honest. And so at first it was like completely uh, blindsided me. And then I started thinking about it and going, wow, let me talk to people who work in this field and I, and present this to them and see what they say. Um, and they sort of said, no, actually, it's uh, it's essential that if any solution is to be made, it's got to be a community-wide thing. It can't be, it can't just be, you know, it has to be an issue that everyone looks at. Um, so, but there was a particular statement that just sort of blew my mind. And I, it's in the film, I interviewed Sheikha Uberoj. So she was India's number one professional tennis player for many years. Um, and I, but I first of all talked to her about it on the phone and then we filmed it in New York. She said, you can empower a person into isolation. And I think she was relating it to her own experience. Like she, you know, went to Princeton, like super educated, super successful, super privileged. But even still within her American Indian community, because she was this highly successful woman, if you like, she'd experienced how that obviously benefited her, but also went against her in the way, in some ways, in the way that people thought of her, because you're you're too prominent, you're too you're sort of too big for your boots. You know, you should be more like this or like whatever, right? Uh, um, or maybe um, for marriage, you know, it's upsets the apple cart in terms of the hierarchy of you shouldn't be more successful than your husband or earn more than your husband or all these kind of things that, that can be there. Um, And, um, but she also had been very uh, involved in impact work. And she said, you have a girl in a rural context and you do educate her. And all of a sudden her ideas for what could possibly be uh, possible in her life, maybe have expanded. And she might have aspirations now that were more than, what she previously thought was possible. But if you haven't worked to also help the other people within that community expand their understanding of what could be possible for her, she's empowered into isolation. So in a way, she she's worse off because mm-hmm. so, and there is a kind of a euphoric overseas international development kind of thing this is what i was feeling which is like oh we just have to educate girls in the developing world and that will be it like everything will change and i was thinking like that's a nice idea but like in reality i think it's much more complex than that i don't think that uh like i don't think that will will i mean and and when i spoke to people working in the field they said yeah well you know obviously it, it it does move things in the right direction but there is kickback and there is pushback and it does disrupt the way things are so i felt like actually the story uh, as part of the bigger picture is is that if we don't engage men in this conversation and you can see the parallels of this in in western society or bigger society then actually the 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 change although it might seem really good for the women in the broader per- picture uh is causing disharmony because people don't live in isolation. They live in families and communities. So you have to help everyone on the move on the journey together and at least have this understanding. And if you don't, you could be causing more harm, if you like. Mm-hmm. So I thought, actually, this criticism wasn't was a blessing because it made me 
go back and actually then we looked at projects that were working with men and boys and we we spent time with families and we spoke to fathers to really understand their concerns and so we we wanted to see the full picture and um contribute i suppose to that dialogue which is if you're going to do this kind of work you can't do just a bit of it you have to look at the whole community and make sure that whatever progress or any change that happens like everyone is feeling benefited you know it's not one at the cost of the other or whatever because otherwise it's just not sustainable anyway isn't it no matter how much you might think it's a good thing um yeah so that was kind I, of like what it was yeah i urge uh all our listeners to go check out that film it's called road to vrindavan it's a documentary uh where can they find that yeah so it's we did a sort of premiere online for two weeks a couple of months or a month or two ago where it was awesome. We had like 2,000 people around the world watch it in a two-week period and got incredible feedback and stuff. But it's actually only available right now at various film festivals around the world. And right now, because I know this is live and it'll people will be watching it in the next few days, you can go to Barnes Film Festival. It's actually in London, but obviously it's online at the moment. So for the next week, you can watch it there. There's probably a small charge, but there's a whole ton of other great films. So Barnes International Film Festival, if you just Google it, B-A-R-N-E-S. And um, yeah, so it looks at the whole picture of, and, and we're, I was really, having had the background and experience of Indian culture, I was very sensitive, like there's no sensationalizing or uh, blame game in it. It's just a kind of an insight into the characters' lives that we see on screen in their yeah. own words the realities that they're experiencing, the challenges they're experiencing, the challenges that um, that kind of clash uh, that happens when you have a deeply rooted tradition and culture and at the same time senses of, you know, progress or change or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and the the tensions and the, the navigating all of that um, – and I feel like, yeah, we did a good job of sensitively doing that. Um, and what's beautiful as well is the stories on screen are in India, but I was always very keen that people don't think that this is like an, a unique to India situation. These right. cultural um, um, hierarchies or challenges that, you know, in this case, particularly women and girls face uh, are, uh, are all over the world. And they present themselves in, in today's time in, in a certain way. A generation ago, even in Ireland where I grew up, women would have experienced them in a slightly different way. And that's the beautiful thing about the feedback is people have come forward wherever they live and they could relate to different things within the film. Like, oh, that reminds me of my experience growing up or the challenges I had to face or that um, like a, a, quite a, a friend of mine who's an Irish writer, she said, my generation of women who are, have had more uh, freedom to pursue things and interests than our generation, sometimes our own mothers were envious of us mm. because she said wherever there's, she used the word thwarted lives. But I guess it's that sense of women the world over, they tend to put everybody else first, which you know is obviously also a great, uh, a good quality. But then sometimes... In the process of doing that, they find themselves at a certain point in their life and they go, what happened to me? Like, like I, it's sometimes a thankless task. And so they can sometimes feel um, 
they didn't maybe they weren't appreciated enough or they didn't even look after themselves enough as well in the process and and that can go two ways so it's in we see it in the film and people can relate to it in their own lives anyway especially when uh you live in the joint family situation where you know the daughter-in-law moves in and lives with the the mother um if the mother has had difficulties or sacrifices she's had to make that she wasn't maybe so happy about she can either feel i never want anyone else to go through that so i will try and help change things for the better or sometimes also we see i had to do it so you'll have to do it right uh, it's just the way it is it's crap but that's just it and so i think we're all, and so i i even feel that now in krishna consciousness i feel like not so when we talk about krishna consciousness obviously we don't mean real krishna consciousness but in our experience of the society and the and, and the the way in which it interfaces with our lives and the world i feel like we have to do the same thing we have to look at things on their own merit and go is that working and what is the effect it's having and if it's not having a good effect you've got to look at it and you've got to mm. think do i want to just go well that's just the way it is or do you want to go no actually can we do better um right. and i was just talking to a friend earlier you know he was just saying because we were so giri dari who's since trubhavanath passed away the the leads the festival Hare krishna festival program in the uk we were talking about um reviving the the presentation that we make to the public whether it's through dramas or film or dance or whatever um and i was kind of joking that you know it's very exciting at the moment there are loads of young creative people within the devotee community and they're finding new ways to present uh, these ideas, and it's very exciting. But for a long time, there was a, a sort of a very stereotypical presentation, which is um, materialistic life, it's so crap, and this and that, and the other, full of suffering. Uh, you meet a devotee, you get the Bhagavad Gita, the clouds open up, the sun shines through, and it's hallelujah. You know, <laughs> that, was, that was kind of like the same stereotypical presentation for everything. And it's just like, you know, in the 80s, that was kind of like, wow, like maybe it worked. But like now that's just, it just doesn't work. It's not even, a you know, it's just too. So how can we find these new ways? Mm. And he was talking about, yeah, like, you know, he wants to develop new ideas. And um, he was saying, you know, like he was looking at the success criteria for something like TED Talks, for example, which, which being inspired films, we are the partner to TEDx London. And we've done a lot of filmed a lot of the TEDx talks in the UK. But wow. he, he was he was saying that, and I was thinking to myself, he said that, yeah, one of the criteria that makes a TED Talk successful is that the person speaks from their own experience. So yeah. it's authentic, like it's real. And I was saying, yeah, you know what? If there was a TED Talk, which was five amazing things I learned as a Hare Krishna and three things that I would void you against, for example. Oh, wow, interesting. Yeah, now something like that. I think that could be incredibly successful because you see, have you ever looked up a product and all it says is everything about this is brilliant and perfect. You're not going to believe it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if you go on and you're reviewing a product and you see that it has loads of good reviews and a few bad reviews, overall you make an assessment Yeah. and you go, and that's not even the, the real reviews, but like, you know, you watch like a tech review, it says pros cons for say a camera. Yeah. And okay. It's going to have some cons and they're not going to be brilliant. But if the pros are better, you still might buy it. So I think we sometimes have this naive idea that if we admit or we talk about the cons of the things that are not so good, 
that somehow like it's a betrayal or it's a bad idea or it's this or that. It's actually brilliant idea right. because it is so much more real. And mm. like people will still make their assessment. If you believe there's more good things than bad things, then people can still make their choice. It's not going to put them off. It's probably more likely to make them go, yeah, well, at least I feel like that's a true assessment of what it is rather than some fake kind of idea of what we think we should present it as. Do you know what I mean? I really like that point. I mean, that part of this <clears throat> podcast has been like kind of that, like in the context of our society of ISKCON, mm. uh, even though this is like kind of more broad than any, than, uh, you know, just an ISKCON podcast, but like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love to critique my our own society because how can we make it better? No one, you know, we when we see other people do it, okay, you're criticizing, but when it's kind of, when we do it ourselves, it can be like, uh, it can be like constructive and it can be like, okay, let's try to have a conversation about how to make this better and see mm. what works and like what you were saying. I really mm. like the point you made about when when you have a product, it's not like everything's going to be, oh, this is brilliant. This is amazing. You need to know, okay, there's also other things about it that you might want to look out for and things like that. Mm. That's a really good point. Yeah. And I think- you too, ever like, around to doing that TED Talk? No. I mean, I only just was talking to him about it today, earlier today. Oh, um, I see. I see. Okay. <laughs> um, but I think something like that, um, yeah, th those type of presentations, you know, could act could actually be really good um, material um, to to kind of bring people in. I think um, also I think uh, the the what I feel sometimes is when we bring up things that you know maybe you know called critiques or whatever. I think the thing is is that if the energy in the response is more about defending the thing then acknowledging the critique then you can't you can't even have a conversation yeah. because you can still go ahead afterwards if you wish to potentially defend but you have to acknowledge yes the thing whatever it is and if you if you can't like how can an, any reasonable person have a conversation with someone else unless you can identify and acknowledge whatever the thing is yeah um and and only then you can then say okay well you could look at it like this or you could look at it like that but you have to see it for what it is first um, and I don't think I just think that if you I, I feel like this with devotees sometimes is that like that's logical rational thinking I think for me at least like that you have to approach everything like that if you find yourself in any kind of situation where you're the 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 you're not approaching it in a logical kind of reasonable manner then you you should be um like taking a step back mm. if you know what i mean um yeah. because that's the definition of a i guess a cult in a way where the logic as long as you're inside it makes sense but if you step back for a second it totally doesn't make sense right. i think something reasonable has to make sense for both that's my feeling yeah to a reasonable person. Yeah, going back to the film, what were some what were some after effects of mm -hmm. of like people seeing it? And I watched it, and it was really nice. But mm -hmm. uh, but if but like 
like some some of those girls, their stories, anything. So you mean to... like um, kind of like um, where they ended up, kind of thing? Yeah, the them them themselves, but also the film itself. How how is it received and things like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so many of the girls, um, two of the main girls, Anurada and Rashmi, we see at the beginning that they were to be married off at kind of 12, 13. Um, and obviously that would have taken on certain responsibilities and they, you know, pretty much any idea of developing themselves would have been kind of stopped. Um, both of their stories, you know, in the film, they didn't get married for, for different reasons. Um, one of them, Anurada, she did something very brave and bold that, that sort of put it off and she went on, she's probably the hero of the film in some respects. She went on to become a teacher at the Sani Pani Moon School and then also to teach girls from so many villages around on her roof. Um, and oh, inspire. Right. Yeah, it's towards the end. Um, but I had a I had a strong sense when we were making the film that um so there was one place in particular, Kochugaon, it's quite a remote village in Maharashtra. Um, and there was a whole group of girls that had been brought together through this piece of action research where a census or some research was done of all the girls in the village. Like what are their hopes, their aspirations, their fears, their concerns, um, what was troubling them, all of this. And then they did a smaller group of them um, and they brought them together as a group. And what they found before that was that they were very isolated from each other, even though they're in a village because they were either um, sort of, there was no sense or opportunity for them to they were invisible basically in the village they didn't have any role they didn't have any voice they didn't have any acknowledgement of of them no one had ever ever asked them any of those things before no one had asked them what they were interested in what they wanted to do what they were concerned about what were they well, worried about nothing ever um and so they developed a sense of camaraderie and connection, and they realized they had the same issues and all of the rest of it. And so they were now doing dramas to the whole village that were very comedic and brilliant, and the whole village would like laugh about them, but they were about serious issues like, you know, suicide of girls if they, you know, so many different things. Um, and so they they had this sense of, I guess, empowerment within the village. You know, they were more confident, they had roles, and they were part of the society, let's just say. Um, but as we left there, I had this kind of real feeling, like as good as all of that was, it was kind of like a summer camp. You know, it was almost like, yeah, yeah, you know, that's all very nice. But pretty soon, when they get married, and all of the kind of... Reality hits. Reality kicks in. It'll all just be like, yeah, I remember when I was young and did this thing for a year or whatever, and but nothing else had changed. Yeah. Um, and to some extent, for some of them, that is what's happened. Um, mm -hmm. one girl in particular, Pushpa, she was married. She, I found out, you know, she got married, she had a kid, her husband kicked her out, and now she's back at home, and you know, it's not good for her. Um, and another one of the girls uh, has gone and is studying sociology and she's became top of her class and she's also working for that organization wow. and she's doing great. So it's a mixed, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's no quick fix in anything, I suppose. Sure. Um, but for me also, you see, so you asked how, how, it, how it was received. 
many people, the thing that mattered the most to me was when it meant something to people personally. Not that they had some, uh, so I, I, I sort of coined it that I didn't want people to externalize the issues. Like in the worst sense, you know, a Western person thinking, oh, isn't it really bad in that faraway third world country that these people are treated like that? That was for maybe the worst kind of result of it. Like that, that's not what I was aiming for. So right. I wanted people to watch it and go, yeah, okay, the context of these stories may be different from me, but how does some of these issues relate to me? in my life now or my life in the past or whatever. And so when I heard those kind of feedbacks where people really connected it on it as a human level and they made them reflect or it made them have conversations within their families or across generations or all that, that stuff was hugely heartwarming. And we got tons of those, those feedbacks. And also those were from people, like all kinds of people, but also like I, I had um, the devotee that you're speaking to tomorrow, the Swami, what's his name? A Padmanabh Maharaj. Pa Padmanabh Maharaj. Like so, he uh, watched it and sent me an amazing, like, really detailed, long review of it, and he uh, loved it. And that was so nice to hear about, like, thoughtful, yes, um, uh, introspective people who are obviously serious about spiritual life, but are also not threatened by it. Who could really see good in it and understood that these challenges and all that. And also, Mahatma Prabhu uh, did the same. They both like just message me and so so those kind of uh and were very encouraging and said these things are so important we talk about them and all so there was all of that which was wonderful of course you you got some of the other side as well <laughs> which was you know um uh i mean i thought one funny one was uh you know the film shouldn't be called road to vrindavan it should be called road away from vrindavan <laughs> 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 i thought that was great um you know, because uh, what is this nonsense? You know, girls saying they want to become astronauts and all this, you know, it's just total right. nonsense, all of that, you know. Um, and also, you know, other people saying like, um, you know, I mean, even like pretty much these words, I can't remember the exact words, but something like, you know, this is just a disruption from the divine plan for society and, you know, it's denying the godly given role of a woman to be in the house and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I, I get how you can present like that and be justified in your own mind as it, and from, cause we can quote one thing we've learned, I think in the last year is that, and I've, we've heard it said, you know, you can pretty much justify anything you want to from scriptures if you want to. Yeah, totally. Cherry you picking. Know, yeah. Yeah, whatever it is your sort of slant is. Um, and I think the danger, like, so I, so that's fine if if we all understand that that's what it is. I think the danger is, is when you do your cherry-picked version of what you think, and then you say that is the absolute only way that you should see it. Like, yeah. that's super dangerous, but also, like, and, and I understand why people do it. Like, there's a great uh, sense of security in feeling like you know or you're definite about something. Like, I understand like that, that feels very safe to people. It's much more uncomfortable to kind of go, well, you know, it's sort of, uh, there's gray areas or it's something that we're, you know, is emerging or it's changing or there's different opinions. Like some people's brains that just explodes their brain. They can't deal with it. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I get it. I also have, it's been good for me because I've also understood that, you know, the people who let's just call them for the sake of ease, you know, maybe more conservative traditionalists. Um, 
like there's there's good reason why there they have like so i think a lot of the control within a lot of those ideas is is based on fear what if this happens what if that happens if you yeah. do that then this might happen and so you can't just dismiss that because there may be good reason to have the fear mm. because there may be danger however it's what you do as a result that's the difference so you can say oh there might be danger for girls and one conclusion is so just keep them in the house never let them out right <laughs> and you can say it's it's solved <laughs> it's sort yeah. sorted um but kind of like that that isn't i, I wouldn't really say that's a sort of a, a brilliant solution for everybody um so like uh like is there is there other ways that we could look at this or is there other ways that we could think about this um and so but but acknowledging the fear and the reason that there is fear is is also important rather than mm. just saying that you know like so so yeah it's a complex thing mm. Very interesting. So I urge all my listeners to go check that um, that movie out on BarnesFilmFestival.com. There's actually a link in the co in the comments that someone put. Let's look at the questions. We're coming to the end here. Yeah. Um, someone is asking, is Ravenel your birth or initiated name? This is also <laughs> something I wanted to ask you about. Uh, why you never took initiation. Maybe you can kind of... Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. This is probably a longer conversation, but in brief. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um. So no, my 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 father gave me the name uh, Ravenel. It's a character from a movie that he saw. <laughs> so um, so it's my birth name. But Trebuvanath um, called me Ravi, and so that was kind of my devotee oh, name in okay. the sense, you know, in the sense that that's what during my time, like everyone knew me as Ravi. Um, and actually, I'm glad you asked it actually because um, so I totally wanted to get initiated by Trebuvanath. You know, like wow. I said, my my. I remember we were in Africa. We were both in this place called Krishna Mansion, which was actually um, Mukesh Shukla in, in Kampala. He had this huge aluminium factory, and upstairs was this big kind of marble place that he called Krishna Mansion, and it was our kind of base when we were there. And Trubhuvanath and I were going to sleep uh, in sleeping bags on the marble floor next to each other in this place, and I asked him if he would initiate me. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh and um and he said no <laughs> he said no it wasn't that he said no to me but he didn't he didn't want to initiate anyone and he never did and um you know many people did want to get initiated by him yeah and i think he um he had seen the way he described it was he'd seen many of his godbrothers um fall down and you know kind of he said you know become influenced by sort of false pride and different things and he sure. just he just was very vigilant he didn't want to take on that role and like i get it for him for him it's his prerogative right it's his prerogative that's what he wanted to do and and, that, and i totally respect that at the same time it was very hard for me because i felt like you know i've met this person they've inspired me to do this huge step in my life to completely commit myself and dedicate myself to them fully um, and, and, and for me, it did feel like it, it wasn't, I mean, in one sense, it, I was happy. It, it was complete in the day to day, but the, the, let's say the consummation or, you know, the, the sort of the, the finishing parts to it, I felt like that was something that I, I hankered for. Right. And sometimes he would say, well, what's the problem? 
I am, you know, you're, I'm engaging you in service. You're like, what is the issue? And I suppose it's a big question that I still have, like in some respects, um, you know, sitting down and doing a fire sacrifice or not doing it. I don't know if it really makes any difference if you've mm. really committed in your heart fully. Um, and also, of course, there's the thing of in the Gaudiya Mass before, you know, Prabhupada came to the West, Aranam initiation, I mean, literally could be you walked in off the street, you know nothing, they say, here's the beads chant, and then that is your Aranam initiation. The right. only big initiation was the Diksha, was the was the 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 um, Brahman initiation, yeah. Sure, yeah. So in that sense, right. you know, depending on how you look at it, you know, I was, I see it like I was initiated into the chanting and like, What's the problem? I suppose, but you know, there's the societal thing of you know the name and all of that and stuff. And so you aren't you aren't sort of fully into that. But you know what? I tell you something honestly. I'm actually really grateful as well that I didn't because, um, like I toyed with different people after that and stuff. But I could only be true to myself, like fully right. authentic to myself. I never felt fully um, inspired or compelled in the same way. So I just. I just couldn't do it because mm. I, I wouldn't be being honest. Right. Um, and also I feel grateful because, you know, now I don't chant 16 rounds all the time and different things. And, you know, I know so many devotees who make this, this vow, like this big thing. And then also many of them or most or whoever, who knows the statistics, find themselves in a situation where, you know, they still love Krishna conscious and they're still part of things and stuff, but they don't do all of the things that they vowed to do. And right. so I kind of feel good. Like I never... I never made a vow that I wasn't going to be able to keep. Right. Um, and I still love Krishna consciousness. I still like it's, it is the, the background to everything of my understanding of the, of existence. And, um, and it's, it's just very integral to who I am. Um, but yeah, like th there was a one-time thing and I, it was me and Trubhuvanath and that's the way it played out. Yeah, fascinating. No. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so where can we watch it? Uh, she post, posted it later, Barnes Film Festival. But then the mm. second question, does your friend Stephen, with <laughs> whom you were at Rathyatra and Elia in Dublin, does he have anything to do with devotees? Um, not not in a deep way, but you know, he messaged me very recently. And oh, right. um, cool. he said something. He lives in America now, but he said... Um, Something like, um, I can't remember what it was. And then I said to him, oh, do you remember that time we we met at the LA Rathiatra? And he said, I'll never forget it. So he and many, many of my friends have a real soft spot for the devotees. And actually quite a number of my friends joined after me as well. Oh, really? In Dublin. Yeah, quite a few. Oh, wow. Um, so, and it's funny because, you know, sometimes we might think, oh, like even broader people than that, like um, you don't really know what they think and they may not fully themselves sign up to it. But I remember at different points in my life, my friends would sort of, they would be happy if I was doing well on my Krishna consciousness. Like they they may not fully get it or they may not be their choice, but they, if they feel like it's the right thing for you, they they really were, they, they would prefer that you're doing well in it than you're not doing well in it. Like they were well-wishers, you know? So mm. he... He and most of them would be very um, favorable. Mm. Yeah. We have some one last uh, appreciation here. Love your integrity about not taking a vow you can't keep. Mm. It was a good point. I mean, the irony of that is obviously if I had taken it with Trubhuvanath, uh, 
you know, maybe I'd still be where I am. So maybe I wouldn't have been able to keep it, but I, I would have, I would have made it at that time, but because I didn't find, um, another personality that I, that I sort of ended up doing it with now for whatever some people might feel like, Oh, I wish I had for that reason. I'm, I'm kind of glad I didn't make a vow that I couldn't keep. Yeah. Mm. Well, Ravi, thank you so much for joining us. And if you have some parting words for our listeners that you can leave them with. <laughs> um, I actually have two things, if that's okay. One sure, is, yeah. Yeah. one is, um, balancing like try to find association i mean um whether it's a person that super inspires you or just uh a group of people that inspires you to really feel um deeply committed to krishna consciousness or but also uh, authentic in your self and how you engage with Krishna consciousness like anything that because uh, Krishna consciousness fortunately now that it's established is very broad there's all kinds of different people so if you find yourself in any situation and this is something I would say to anybody whether they're in Krishna consciousness or not that doesn't feel authentic to you that doesn't feel right to you that doesn't that feels odd or strange to you don't feel the tiniest bit guilty with just removing yourself from that and gravitate towards the the people or the situations where you if you feel um, you can be more or fully authentic. Um, don't let anybody tell you that you have to be a certain way or this way or that way or the other way, or, you know, let them tell you that, but just go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it's, it's going to damage you. And, um, you know, it's not like, you know, it's not that life, it's not like we're saying like, oh, there's only one life or whatever, but life's too short to be in any situation that's just not helping you grow or, or that you don't feel comfortable in. Totally. Um, the other thing I'd like to say is um, back to that point about us trying to look for people to um, find new and fresh ways to present Krishna consciousness. Yeah. I was talking with Giri about maybe doing a global kind of competition, like to invite creative people, but I know you have a great sort of wide audience. So I would uh, invite any young or old person who is creative and who would like to connect with me, I suppose, initially, but to with a view to whether it's animation or film or dance or um, music or drama or any of those kind of things that would like to explore how to use those things to find interesting and new ways to present Krishna consciousness to a broader public um, to please get in touch with me so that we can potentially, um, I mean, I'm happy to, if, if it's helpful because of all my experience in film, share whatever I've learned, but also look at ways that we can spice up our presentation that we do at the Hare Krishna festivals. Fantastic. I love that. I love that. So the first thing I, I really like what you said about the authenticity and uh, life is so short, you know, you really have to go places where you feel inspired. And if, if there's no inspiration there, then, you know, see, so move on and go somewhere else and, and, and be true to yourself and, and, but, but, but make it Krishna conscious and comfortable for yourself too. I, I really like that point. And the second point, definitely, I, I really appreciate that. I love to share, you know, 
with the network here. Uh, if you want to get in touch with Ravi, this is him on Facebook. If you put mm -hmm. that name in, you'll find it in the search. Uh, and this is him on Instagram, Be Inspired Rav. Mm -hmm. uh, you can send him a DM there and follow, give him a follow. And then there's the um, Road to Vrindavan documentary that we already talked about. Well, mm -hmm. Ravi, thank you so much. It was really fascinating, mm -hmm. fascinating to hear your story and it was inspiring. Be inspired. I'm very inspired. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, th thank you so much for, for joining. And thank you for all our listeners for joining. Please check us out on Facebook, on YouTube. We have um, episodes weekly. Uh, I don't know if I'm doing it next week because I might be away, but um, I'm going to try to, or you'll see it on, on Facebook or Instagram. And thanks everyone for joining. And uh, uh, Ravi, stay on. I'm going to just turn the live off. Hare Krishna, thank you so much. Hare yeah, Krishna, take care. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna.